the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back as we head into our third hour of our daily three-hour tour. It's a delight to welcome back to the show Jonathan Tobin. He's a senior contributor at The Federalist, thefederalist.com, editor-in-chief of JNS.org, JNS.org, and a columnist for The New York Post. There's a lot to talk about in your wheelhouse, Jonathan. Thanks for giving us some of your evening. I much appreciate it, sir. I hope you're well. Thanks very much. It's always great to be on with you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, we love learning from you. Uh, let's start uh, with uh, something you wrote uh, this week, yesterday, I believe it was, for The Federalist. Will the GOP establishment enable another disastrous Iran nuclear deal? Could I ask you, could you run us through the disastrous part of the deal, and then we'll get to the GOP? Can you talk to us first about the dangers of this deal, and then we'll talk about Republicans? Is that cool? Could you you do that for us? Sure. Thank uh, you. Thanks, Beth. You bet. Um, you know, it's, this is something that's sort of going on right under the radar right yep. now. Everybody's focused on Ukraine. Um, very little attention is being devoted to the impending agreement, and all reports out of Vienna saying they're very close to it. Um, and uh, so just to, to outline what is happening is that the Biden administration is committed to reviving the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. And they say that doing so will prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon because they believe that uh, President Trump's withdrawal from the deal in 2018 was a big mistake. It, it helped Iran get closer. That's their, that's their talking point. In fact, this is complete baloney. Mm-hmm. The Iran nuclear deal um, in 2015 did not prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Quite the contrary. At best, it just kicked the can down the road. It had some weak restrictions on Iran, but it allowed them to keep their nuclear program and their advanced research and their equipment. And this deal had something in it. It's like the ultimate poison pill. It had sunset clauses, which is to say all the restrictions on Iran would expire. <laughs> you, know, you know, just like would go away. And the last restrictions in this deal will expire at the end of this decade. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2015, 2030 sounded like a long way away. You know, mm-hmm. Who could think that far ahead, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, most of us have trouble planning next week. Yeah. <laughs> 20, you know, 2030, a long time away. Well, here we are in 2022. We're a lot closer. And in fact, getting closer every day. So what Trump realized was that Sooner or later, the West was going to have to renegotiate if we were serious about preventing an Islamist terror-supporting state, the, the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, you know, an avowed enemy, not just of Israel, but of the Arab states in the region and of the United States, to whom, to which, you know, we're still the great Satan to them. If we were going to stop them from getting a nuclear weapon, this deal had to be junked renegotiated, and Iran had to be forced to give up their nuclear ambitions. But instead, we're going right back into it. 
And we're not just going right back into it. In order to entice Iran to sign again on the dotted line, um, President Biden's Iran envoy, Robert Malley, like everybody else in the administration, an Obama alumni, mm-hmm. um, is giving them sweetener. Mm-hmm. They, you know, this deal is even weaker than the last one, including uh, the delisting of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is, you know, Iran's terror organization. It's, uh- it's their terror holding corporation. Well, let me just say for the audience, a lot of people in the audience may know it by its initials, IRGC. Just, yeah, the just a little, IRGC, yeah. mm-hmm. right, which is, you know, uh, on the list, as it should be, of uh, international terror organizations. Uh, the U.S. is promising to remove it. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we're not just going to enrich and empower them, and we're going to definitely enrich them. They're going to get billions and billions, as they did in 2015. And get stronger, be able to threaten the neighborhood that they live in more, and get closer to a nuclear weapon. So, you know, so, so this is a disaster. Nobody's talking about it. And we're going to, you know, it's going to be snuck in very quickly. So that's that's the nature of the disaster. Okay, good. The, thank you for laying it out that way. We might also add, of course, it gives a lot of money to the Iranians and to the billions. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. That's That's another added element. I presume what John Kerry said last time would be true this time, which is you can't guarantee that money won't end up in the hands of terrorists. Um, well, of course it will. Of course it <laughs> will. part of the budget. <laughs> well, the regime right. is a terrorist. <laughs> yeah, I yes. mean, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Jonathan. Okay, so we have that being outlined. There's another question, too, which is kind of an interesting diplomatic position we've put ourselves in. You know this stuff a million times better than I ever possibly could, but it does seem to me that the Iranians are kind of – let me just put it in English. The Iranians are less eager to get to this table than we are, the United States. It seems a little bit odd to me, at least from what I'm reading, that we are the ones using the Russians to cajole them to the negotiating table that they're not as interested in as we are. It seems like the appeasement is all in one direction. I'm not sure if that's something you're picking up on as well or if you even well, agree. I mean, you're right, Seth, about that, but it's not new. Right. The same dynamic preceded the 2015 deal. Yeah. Um, you know, Obama and John Kerry went into those negotiations in 2013 with all the cards, international sanctions, Iran was isolated, weak, and won. But every time in the talk, Iran said no, Obama and Kerry said, okay, right. on to the next thing, and right. then no, okay. The same thing all the way through. They were desperate for a deal at any price, and Biden and Blinken are just as desperate for a deal at any price. Now, it just makes even less sense today than it did seven years ago. Yeah. And it's not, right? I mean, it's not as if this deal is even needed to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear power. I was discussing this with Michael Rubin the other day. You probably know Michael's work well. Uh, sure. Uh, and, you know, Real this is a signatory to... I edited him at commentary. Oh, oh, go, oh go. good, 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 good. Um, this, is, this, this is a country already a signatory to the non-proliferation treaty. You do not need this deal to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear power. You don't. Any more not than you needed a deal no. with Iraq to prevent it from becoming a nuclear power in 1981, let us say. Right. Not, not, you know, not legally. Everything they're doing was illegal. What Obama did was give it a legal imprimatur. Yeah. Sort of made it all kosher. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. The opposite of what 
he had promised the opposite of what the American people wanted. Exactly right. All right, you laid it out well. Now this uh, curious part about the title. Will the GOP establishment enable this? Some of it doesn't look so good, i got to admit, for our side. My side. I don't want to lump you in with me. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, the you know, we're, we're rightly focused, those of us who care about this issue, on what Biden and the Democrats are doing. I mean, because it's their doing. You know, it's their... It's their, it, it, it's their policy. I, however, in the piece that you referenced that I uh, had published in The Federalist yesterday, tried to look at it from a slightly different point of view. What are the people that were elected by conservatives and Republicans to oppose this policy doing to stop it? And the precedent was in 2015, when, quite frankly, Republicans had majorities in both the Senate and the House. And theoretically should have been able to stop uh, Obama's deal. They didn't. Now, the reason why that happened was partly because Obama and Kerry were, like, too clever for them. The entire deal is a, is a treaty between nations. Indeed, it's the most significant treaty that the United States has signed probably since the end of the Cold War. JCPOA, Jonathan, I missed a beat. JCPOA was one of the most significant ones. I'm sorry, is that what you said? Yes. Yeah, okay. The, the Thank Iran you. Sorry. The JCPOA, yeah. Yeah. as it's known, the Joint Comprehensive yeah. Plan yeah. of yeah. Action. Yeah. This incomprehensible acronym that is attached to it. Um, it was, by any reasonable definition, a treaty. And those of us who know the Constitution of the United States, get out your little pocket copy. It says treaties have to be, pa- have to be ratified by the Senate by a two-thirds vote. Mm-hmm. That's the way we ratify. That's the way the founders did it. Mm-hmm. That's what they wanted. They understood that a treaty was a solemn legal commitment that was binding. The only way to pass a treaty is to get two-thirds of the Senate to approve it. It's a, it's a high bar, but a necessary one. Kerry responded to this was saying, basically laughing and saying, well, we know we can't pass it, so we're just going to say it's not a treaty. Hold that thought, Jonathan. And, I can keep you another segment, right? Because this is important. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And then I want to talk to you about some goings on in another region in the middle, in another place in the Middle East. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Jonathan Tobin. We'll conclude that thought. Where's the GOP on this? Why aren't they louder? I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Jonathan Tobin is our guest. He is a contributor to uh, The Federalist, a senior contributor to The Federalist and editor-in-chief of JNS.org, columnist for The New York Post. We're talking about the impending Iran uh, deal, and uh, we got the outlines, the contours of it from Jonathan in the first segment. Here, uh, Jonathan's talking to us a little, a little bit about where the Republicans are because they're not exactly where we all want them or need them. Jonathan, sorry for the break. Go right ahead, sir. Well, uh, to pick up where we left off, as I said, we're focused on the Democrats because their policy. The question is, what are Republicans doing about it? Mm-hmm. Now, in 2015, you know, as, as I noted, uh, Obama and Kerry should have submitted the Iran deal as a treaty, as the Constitution demands. Instead, they just laughed at the Constitution and laughed at the Republicans and said, no, we're not going to call it a treaty. It's just an agreement we're signing. You have no say about it. Now, the proper response to flouting the Constitution and to do something really dangerous to undermine 
our security, the security of our allies, should have been for the then Republican majority in the Senate and majorities in the Senate and the House to say, wait a minute, buddy, you're not getting away with it. You know, we're not going to, they could have easily just said, you know what, we're not going to fund the State Department, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is doing this until you, you submitted a treaty. We're not going to approve a simple, single diplomatic appointment. All those contributors waiting for their, you know, for, for their, uh, you know, embassies and, and all that stuff. Nothing. You have to submit it as a treaty. But the Republican establishment didn't do that. And in fact, the then chair of the Senate uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, um, Senator Bob, the, the former Senator Bob Corker, who was just you know, played, you know, like a drum, like a piano by, by Kerry and Obama, with, I'm sorry to say, you know, with, without Senator McConnell, the majority leader, then majority leader, now minority leader, doing anything to stop him, he said, you know what, what we should do, let's pass a law so that we have some say over it. And they, they, cook, they, they passed a law saying Congress has to approve any deal with Iran. So that sounds like the Republicans were doing something, right? Except it doesn't. It didn't replicate the treaty, you know, the treaty confirmation process. It's the opposite. In fact, they inverted it. So what it meant was, as long as they... Republicans didn't have two-thirds plus one vote to override an Obama veto of this act, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the treaty just slipped through. So as long as the Democrats have 34 votes in the Senate, you know, which they obviously have, or, or, or more than a third of, of the House, there would be no real uh, accountability. So this, this law that uh, McConnell and Corker passed was like so many other things that Congress does. It gives the appearance that they're doing something, but in fact, it's all a nonsense. It's, 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 it's an absurdity, and that's what happened. That's how the uh, Iran deal went through with more than one-third of the Senate. That's it. So here we are now seven years later, and I'm asking, what, is, what are the Republicans? who should have learned their lesson, because after all, only a year after that astonishing failure, I mean, just just completely being played for fools by Obama, the Republican establishment was shocked when Donald Trump won the presidential nomination because the Republican electorate got tired of having leaders who didn't fight for their values, who, who, who only valued their power, not the things that the base and the voters wanted them to do. That's why Trump was nominated. That's why he became president. So what's the Republican, what are the Republicans in the Senate going to do about this? And right now, I see no sign that anybody, or certainly not the leadership of the Republican caucus, is prepared to put their foot down and say, you know what? We can still, we don't have a majority. We only have 50 votes with Kamala Harris, you know, being the tiebreaker. But we can put a hold on all diplomatic appointments. Mm-hmm. We can jam up State Department mm-hmm. funding. We can force you to submit mm-hmm. this new Iran deal as a treaty. Mm-hmm. But they're not doing it. Well, so it's my a, point uh, is, yeah. maybe they should if they actually yeah. care about what their voters and want and if they care about what's right for U.S. security rather than just playing along the way the Washington 
swamp dwellers always do. Oh, I think this is an easy 60-40 issue and maybe higher. Really, I do, Jonathan. Anything I can do to help uh, on, on this project, uh, please uh, enlist me. I, I want to help you push the Republicans well, it's something on this. We, I think we need those of us who care about, about the security of this country, about the danger of this, of, of this policy, need to not just criticize the Biden administration, which we should, but we need to alert the people who are supposed to be yeah. opposing the Biden administration yeah. that yeah. they better do more than just go through a sham process again Good. to stop them. Good. Good. Thank you, Jonathan. Great column. Great point. I only have about a minute and a half left, um, and I hate to do it on the quick. Maybe we'll pick it up next week. But if you could, is Israel at the beginning of a new, perhaps third intifada right now? There's a lot of terrorism going on over the last several days. Not a lot being reported about it, but it, I know what this feeling feels like from years past. Yes. Well, uh, there have been three terrorist attacks inside Israel. Eleven people were murdered in the last week. That's a lot. It's a small country. Imagine, you know, put that on the scale of, of, of the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd all be up in arms about it. Obviously, we're distracted as a nation by Ukraine and by whatever Biden is saying, and then the White House has to walk back. I don't know whether this is the third intifada. This is kind of up to the Palestinians. It's yep. not up to us. Right. I do know that one element of it is up to the United States. If the Biden administration, filled as it is with Obama alumni and with people who have a certain hostility to Israel, respond to this violence by calling for more pressure on Israel, let's revive the peace process, in which the Palestinians have no interest, by the way, and have rejected every offer over time, and saying, in essence, to reward the Palestinian Authority for its subsidies to terrorists and for its policies of, of, of intransigence, then we will get an anti-Palestinian. Yeah, this yeah. is, you know, if you if you subs- if you call if you, if you reward the terrorists, you'll get more terrorists. Be interesting that, to see. I, think, I don't know if we've looked at the budget yet. It'll be interesting to see in the new proposed budget if the PA is getting more money too. That'd be that would be an interesting. Well, that is the goal of, of the Biden yeah, administration. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, that's what they want. If they push ahead with anything like that at a time like this, rather than sending a strong message to Abbas and Hamas that any more of this and you'll get less, you'll get nothing, as Trump attempted to yep, do, yep. then we'll get more terrorism. Yep. And um, the price will be paid in blood, and that should not happen. And often American blood as these things go. Jonathan indeed, to- yeah, Jonathan Tobin, uh, no substitute for brains, man. No substitute for you. Love having you. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure to be with you, Scott. And you as well. Thank you. As we head to break and open it up to your calls, let me put in a word for our sponsor, Balance of Nature. Their fruits and veggies, which I take every single day, a blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables, 100% natural, the only whole food supplement with no additives, synthetics, pesticides, sugar, fillers, or extracts. Everything is made from fresh whole produce through their advanced cold vacuuming process where the vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients of the fruits and veggies are preserved so you get the vital nutrition in each capsule. It's kept me well for the last three years. It's kept my energy up. It's kept my health protected and makes you feel better, too, because it's a lot of great stuff you're getting. You just take it once a day. Balanceofnature.com. They're fruits and veggies. Check them out. In the discount code, make sure to use discount word BALANCE. Discount code BALANCE.
Coming to you live from the Guns Etc. Studios, this is Seth Liebson, and Yair is in Phoenix. Hello, Yair. Good afternoon, sir. To you, too, Seth. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. Thank you. Good. I, I'm so grateful for listening to the last uh, half an hour of your show, because uh, you touched on, you and Jonathan both touched on a subject which seemed to be entirely buried uh, in the news that yeah. seems to be too preoccupied with Ukraine and uh, Will Smith's slap, even though, uh, to be honest, it's refreshing that the media seems to be interested in talking about an instance of black-on-black crime. For the first time ever, uh, yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. You had mentioned um, uh, something, and I'll segue into another point. You have mentioned, uh, does this feel like the beginning of a third intifada? Yeah. And uh, it's an incredibly uh, important question, especially with the latest terror attack in B'nai Brock, yep. uh, which is not being discussed. Uh, and it just reminds you that none of this seemed to have been happening from 2016 to 2020. Correct. And anyone with a with two brain cells to rub together can understand why, and that's the the concept of deterrence and the peace through strength. Yep. And it leads me to think of something which uh, Jonathan has, was so articulate in, sta- in stating, which was that if we allow Iran, uh, an apocalyptic Shia country, to acquire nuclear weapons. Uh, they essentially have a seat at the table that they never otherwise would have had. Right. So you you recall, of course, Pakistan under the tutelage of A.Q. Khan getting their nuclear weapons yep. and therefore being able to have a seat at the table. By the way, North if I can Korea, interject, another story please. where everyone seemed to be kind of asleep at the switch, too, by the way. Absolutely, absolutely. Abdul Kabir Khan, somebody who got, yeah, was a, a nuclear physicist out of, what, University of Karachi, was a nobody. Mm-hmm. And then the, all of a sudden, Pakistan now is a nuclear nation. Right. North Korea is probably the best example that your listeners would can relate to. So North Korea is uh, it, it would essentially have zero seat at the table. It would be like negotiating with, with Tonga or, 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 or Turks and Caicos. Yep. Uh, you know, North Korea's largest export, and, and I'm not even being, and I'm not being facetious, is charcoal briquettes. Right. But because they have nuclear warheads, they have the same seat at the table as France and the United Kingdom and the United States. And so this is just sort of a simple message that I think that Jonathan was saying was, you must act before it's too late. Yeah. If Iran has a nuclear bomb, uh, and they intend to use it. We're not talking about a country that's under that's run by Sunni Islamists who still want to be able to defecate on their gold toilets, who still want to be able to to have a sort of a seat at the international table. Iran has no problem being an international pariah. Right. Iran has no problem in saying, "Hate us all you want." The bomb. Yep. It must be stopped before they act, before they have access to it. Once it's too late, it is simply too late. Yair, do you have a sense, one of the interesting discussions about Iran and nuclear weaponry, uh, going back some years, do you have a sense, a lot of us used to say, you know, the nuclear thing with Iran is certainly a big deal, but it's their support for terrorism that really is the thing most U.S. administrations have been fairly weak on or weak in addressing. And, you know, this seems to be these nuclear arms deals, the 2015 deal, the imminent deal that's going on right now. You know, it seems to be a, a, a sword. I used to say double-edged sword. All swords have at least two edges, right? So it seems to be a sword that um, 
kind of enriches them in both directions. It allows for a, a sloppy at best, a sloppy at best inspections regime, sunset clauses all towards nuclear power and at the same time in wealthening them by bribing them to come to the table with money that they can then funnel to such things as third intifadas. That's, that's absolutely correct. There is no mechanism in place that could buttress Islamic uh, terror. So the IAEA is not anything, it, it has no teeth. Uh, if you recall, during the Obama presidency... And do, Obama do me this favor, buddy. If I can if I can appeal to your patience just a little bit longer, I have to take a commercial break. Can I keep you just a little bit through the break and have you come sure, back on the other side? You, it's an important point uh, that I would love to hear your, uh, your thoughts on. I'm Seth Liebson, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I appreciate this audience so much. You callers, man... Educate me every day. Yeah, you're, you're one of them. Thank you for, for staying on uh, with us. We were talking about the nexus in the Iran deal that doesn't get written up much, very much at all, but the nexus between not only appeasing them with dollars in a deal that does not prevent them from becoming a nuclear power, but the use of those dollars, what that means when you are giving them to a, an entity that is the leading state sponsor of terrorism. Anyway, sir, you were on that case. Go ahead. Yes, you make a great point. And I, I think... One of the things which probably could have been unimaginable just a few years ago, certainly under President Trump's administration, but that you might actually see, and especially because of these sort of seemingly non-related variables, such as the price of gas, uh, is that the Sunni bloc will actually possibly have enough leverage uh, to dissuade either the Iranians or to push the Americans towards a harsher stance against the Iranians. So we know that Naftali Bennett, for example, under his prime ministership in Israel, has been weak and feckless, uh, despite all the promises made before the election. Uh, yet the Sunni bloc, so the Saudis, the Bahrainians, the Omanians, the United Arab Emirates, they have a dog in this race, too. Uh, this is a Sunni bloc that is keenly aware of the danger of uh, of the Shia bloc, mm -hmm. and certainly lately, in the last two or three weeks, uh, the emboldening of the China-Russia-Iran alliance. And so, obviously, the Biden administration is no friend of Israel's. Uh, but something that might be something to be uh, to keep an eye out for is that, especially with us groveling after our, our defeat, sort of groveling at the feet of the Venezuelans for oil, is the oil-producing nations of OPEC. They might actually say, "You guys want oil? Fine." But you're going to have to start taking a tougher stance towards the Iranians yeah. uh, and their pursuits of nuclear arms. Yeah. And so, again, sort of unimaginable just a few years ago, but it almost seems that, the, that that's the finger on the proverbial scale uh, to, keep being, to keep an eye on just because of these uh, external variables, like I said, in the world, where we probably couldn't have predicted it, which may drive America to take a harsher stance, to be forced uh, uh, unwillingly to take a harsher stance against the Iranians. Well, it looks like, I mean, we're being pushed around a lot right now, uh, and, and we're allowing people to push us around a lot right now. I mean, it's a weird place to be when not even Saudi Arabia will return the president's phone call, and it's a weird place to be where the Iranians don't seem to want to necessarily come to the table too quickly, even though we are promising, you know, hordes of cash to them and some international credibility, to your point, I think it was your point, Yair, in the last segment, in the, in the previous segment, that Iran really doesn't care that much about being a pariah or not. They don't. 
They don't. They have acted the pariah to a fairly well since at least 1979. That's, that's absolutely correct. And we are, we are running on the fumes. You just spoke about international credibility. Right. That was, for a while, the currency through which we dealt. Uh, economic credibility, military credibility. Our dollar is uh, fast, no longer becoming the world's reserve currency. Uh, we have zero political credibility. We're losing our military credibility because we're, our DOD is spending its time, money, and effort on, uh, on sex reassignment surgeries for its admirals. So w- what else is there? Uh, the only thing that you have left is this sort of legacy of might makes right and the potential of our, of our uh, the, 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 and I say latent potential, of being able to use force. Uh, and it's swiftly running out of that political, military, and um, economic capital. And so once Iran acquires nuclear arms, uh, they can be an international prior. They may have no natural resource. It doesn't matter anymore. Once they've got the big red button, uh, it's done. Th- th- that's all the leverage they may need, and that's why I use North Korea as the example. Yeah. North Korea normally wouldn't have a seat at the table, though, sure. because they've got the bomb, it have got a seat at the table, and so it's essential that we stop it before they have the ultimate leverage. Yeah, I think people need to remember this. You know, it's not just that things happen in a vacuum or so arbitrarily that they make no sense. It makes a lot of sense that this country is um, hobbled, shall we say, when enemies or for that matter, even allies who have nuclear weapons, uh, what we can do, what we can pressure them on. I mean, for everyone who wants us to go, you know, full speed ahead into Ukraine, the only real reason we can't uh, outside of, you know, mor- moral argument, the only reason we can't is because we are dealing with a nuclear power. That's why. Same reason. I mean, it, it, it's a lot easier to handle countries before they're nuclear or when they're not nuclear than once they are. We learned that the hard way with North Korea. We learned it the hard way with Pakistan. And we're going to learn it in a really hard way with Iran if we don't get our act together. Yeah, you're. That's it. You nailed it. That's it. No, you did. Keep Thank you, up, brother. Seth. You too. Thanks an awful lot for everything you do and are. Robin, surprise. We can work you in. How are you, sir? Oh, thank you. I'm uh, I'm fine. And your previous caller was nailing just about everything uh, I I think and believe. And I have a feeling he may have uh, tickled your brain a little bit too. Always. I um yeah. I look I look at uh, I don't think this is a third intifada. Um, I I do think that there's a lot of uh, and I've been following this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what what the U.S. government is uh, seemingly uh, forwarding here with the Iran deal is really all about Israel. Yeah. Um, and, and I fear for that for a lot of reasons, uh, with Israel, no matter how, uh, people feel about their current prime minister. I think that the biggest threat to Iran, well, uh, the biggest threat to Israel, I'm sorry, is, is this whole Iran quote unquote deal. And what it does, nothing says, I really don't care about Israel like the current administration, because if they did, they would walk away from all of this and not even use the Russians to, you know, intervene or anything. I think that everything that Iran is doing right now is first and foremost uh, to try to destroy Israel. Uh, The second thing is, yeah, then they'll go after whoever else they want to go after. But, you know, you don't mess with God's children. Okay? Well, but, you know, <laughs> Rob, all, all of which might, you know, all of which is very true. And I don't think you'll disagree with what I'm about to say. 
But um, give me give me extra thirty seconds on this bill. Uh, if if I'm not, you know, if 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 you'll agree with me on this, I, I'm curious if you will. Yes to Israel, but yes to the United States too. It wasn't Israel. Iran killed over a hundred Marines in 1983 in Lebanon. It wasn't Israel that um, Iran uh, took hostages, 52 for 444 days. It wasn't Israelis sleeping in their barracks, 19 of whom were killed uh, by the Iranians in 1996. On and on we can take this. It's Americans, too. Mm -hmm. They opened their parliament with chance of death to America, and they have a lot of American blood on their hand. They have a lot. Does the name Robert Stetham mean anything? You remember the name Robert Stetham? Yeah, Robert Stephens, the guy that was murdered uh, in the airplane. TWA, you bet. I really, yep. I really do think that this is more of a threat to Israel, number one. And most American Jewish people ought to be just livid about all of this. But they don't seem to be. Well, they don't, I yeah. I mean, most, I just saw a post, Rob. <laughs> I just saw a post, oh my goodness gracious, from a synagogue in Chicago. A synagogue in Chicago that uh, now has uh, on their website, uh, proud to announce, tweeting out, proud to announce that the members of my congregation have just voted to adopt anti-Zionism as a core value. Not neutrality, anti-Zionism, okay? When you have synagogues doing this, who needs the Iranians, Rob, right? Yeah, yeah, the Jewish people. uh, (laughs) We'll have to do a whole show on that one day. Bless you, sir. We'll be right back. Thank you. Welcome back. Uh, Steve Hayward wrote something. Okay, I don't know if this – do you guys know what the Bader-Meinhof syndrome is? You can look that up or we can cover it tomorrow. I don't have time to do it today, but it's basically when you see a phrase or a word or a name or something that you haven't seen in a long time, if ever, and then you can't not see it in a lot of other places and gazes. Steve Hayward, is quoting earlier, was talking about Operation Remove Joe within the Republican Party, excuse me, within the Democratic Party. Operation Remove Joe within the Democratic Party. He puts it in quotes, um, the notion being that uh, Democrats are now thinking they probably need some kind of rear action against this guy because he's taken not just the country down, but more importantly to them, their party. And so I... Read that to you a couple seconds ago. Then I just was watching news. I saw a conservative commentator talking about the Democrats trying to get Joe Biden out of office and give him a harder time. You look at the New York Times and the Washington Post now reporting as they are on the Hunter Biden laptop. And, you know, I'm not quite sure yet that we're there, but something to keep your eye on. We like to kind of put some bookmarks down and lay some flags down once in a while here, don't we? Uh, Steve Hayward, by the way, at the end of his post in Powerline uh, today on the uh, Washington Post coverage of the Hunter Biden's Joe Biden scandal, he's doing the um, he's doing the work that the media should be doing. He has a couple final questions. Question for further investigation. Why was the Biden Foundation a charitable entity? And what has it ever done? I wonder sharing space with a for profit entity. How were the office expenses divided between the two? Of course, the difficulty with the Operation Remove Joe is that Kamala Harris is in the way. Start your countdown clock for some old story of Kamala corruption emerging from California. Interesting. There's at least one Democrat whose name rhymes with gruesome who would like to see Kamala out of the way. Kind of interesting. 
Well, Nelson Rockefeller was governor of New York when he became vice president for Jerry Ford. Okie dokie. Until tomorrow, folks, and Bill, too, who I don't think enough. God bless you all, and until tomorrow, class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.